Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Well, welcome. We're going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the six so-called antitheses of the Sermon on the Mount. That's Bible nerd speak for uh, Jesus saying, you've heard it said that that uh, don't uh, commit adultery, don't murder. But I say to you, and so we just looked at Jesus saying that you shouldn't be angry. And, and hopefully there was uh, that was very beneficial. Today, we're going to try to better understand Jesus's command to not even lust. I mean, is he saying that we're supposed to find some new muscle group to stop lusting? I mean, I I haven't found it. I haven't spoken to any person who doesn't really struggle with lusting of some sort, not just lusting after the opposite sex, but lusting after other things. Look, avoiding adultery is hard enough, just like avoiding murder sometimes, right? But Jesus, is he really ramping things up to that nosebleed height level? Is he making lust equivalent to adultery? That somehow if we if we don't uh, if we're not successful in stopping our brain lusting, I mean, good luck with that. God's going to smite us? I mean, look, who has it lusted? I mean, seriously, we're all condemned. We, we all don't have any hope, right? Is he really saying that if we can't defeat it, we've got to start removing body parts? God help us. Or is there something more here that just might change our lives and change our relationships that would be noticeable? And, and by the way, this is particularly true for people who struggle with this, uh, really struggle in this area and feel like they're massive disappointments to God and Jesus. Look, we always hope that you help us get the word out about this podcast. We think that it's going to really help struggling Christians in relevant areas. But for this one, particularly this one, I'm betting you know somebody who could use help. Please pass it on to them. They will be thankful. And this is good news. And the way we're going to teach this passage is good news to people who struggle with this. In the next podcast, by the way, on the same topic, we're going to offer a helpful tool, uh, a a time-tested tool that just might be helpful for people who struggle with porn and lusting. And we're going to suggest that uh, while lust is a problem, there's another problem. Here's our point. There's a bigger problem that must be dealt with a little or a lot first. So again, uh, here at the Gospel Rant, we're going to take an interesting direction. Intriguing, right? But before we plunge in, many of you already know that the Gospel Rant is partnering with Life Audio in our podcast, and that means a few changes. The big one is we get sponsors now. So we're going to take a break to hear from a couple sponsors, okay? When we come back, we will plunge back into Jesus's thoughts on lusting. Stick around. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay. Uh, Some interpretive principles to keep in mind as we do the Sermon on the Mount. We learned them in the Beatitudes. Uh, You can go back and listen to those podcasts, but here they are. Uh, There's three. Jesus was not speaking to a well-heeled Christian audience who wanted to be more righteous and to reduce their guilt and feel better about their relationship with God. He was speaking to a mixed group of unbelievers, frankly, who would have felt most likely that God had abandoned them, and maybe they didn't want to have anything to do with him either. Secondly, this was an honor-shame culture, so the crowd's biggest perceived problem wasn't their need to understand what the law says or what Jesus would add to the law uh, so that they could do it better. No, they wanted uh, to be restored to honor and uh, have their shame removed, get back to their family, tribes, and villages with some face. And to accomplish that, they needed a a patron benefactor of some social substance that could make them people of honor again in their culture. And then third, uh, lastly, something happened to these people on the hillside. When Jesus is speaking to them now, these people have been changed a little or a lot. They're beginning to feel more worthy, more loved, uh, more enviable. That was our translation of blessed be. And they would have that would have been reflected in how they're treating others. And I'm going to underline that. We'll come back to that, particularly with this whole area of lusting, right? They've become more righteous in the sense that they're actually beginning to feel a new motivation, God-sourced motivation, to care about others and the happiness of others more. All right, let's get back into the text. The second antithesis, Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard, Jesus says, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, my goodness. If your right eye causes you to sin, so here's the solution, right? Uh, (laughs) God help us. We're not taking this literally, are we? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Look, uh, can I just confess, be a little open here, I would uh, quickly run out of eyes a long time ago, a long, long, long time ago. So this is very, very relevant to me. What is Jesus saying uh, to me and to others like me, people that he dearly, dearly loves? Okay. All right, the, but I say to you is the same as we heard when he talked about anger, ego de lego human. But I say to you, the ego is I. Uh, and again, strongly emphasized in the Greek sentence, see that Jesus should again put himself next to the word of Yahweh in such a self-conscious way is always remarkable, uh, says Bruner, commentator Bruner. The prophets began their message with, thus saith the Lord. Jesus never uses this prophetic formula. Instead, he regularly asserts, but I say to you, fascinating. I absolutely love that. A claim uh, of, of, uh, of some divinity. All right, let's look at lustful intent. <laughs> Epithumia, 
great Greek word. This You could translate this as, I got to have now. I'm going to have now. I want to have now. It's that kind of longing, epithumia. I want to own it. I want to satisfy my longing for it. By the way, think addiction. That would be a good uh, equivalent word for addiction. I, when I see that person, I am, I'm jonesing for them. And it's in this particular context, it's intensified by uh, the word a day. Uh, I want it now. So everyone who is looking, present participle in the Greek, it's an ongoing action. It defines the person. They are, be, they are at that point a luster, so to speak. They're staring, they're leering, they're stalking, they're longing, they're not welcomed. I'm not saying this has to go on for weeks for it to be lusting, but there's that motivation, there's that intensity, right? It's not just looking at someone and seeing they're attractive. That's different than this. This is, this is I want to own that person. For, I want to use the person for my own benefit. Let me put it scientifically. I I want to keep staring at that person because my brain is giving me dopamine hits, and I'll say more about that. But it feels really good, and I'm using them so that I could feel good. Uh, pros would be with lustful intent. Pros in the Greek can refer to a conscious, pers- purposeful act. So it's an intentional lusting, I guess, versus accidental. Uh, so the idea is I'm looking at them in order to uh, lust after them. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about lusting. Second Peter, Peter really goes into this in chapter 2, verse 14. He talks about the, the sinners. They have eyes full of adultery. You get to see that? That, that lusting look. Uh, he says that it's insatiable for sin. So it's, a, it's an addiction. It'll never be satisfied. And it's just this dopamine hits over and over. Uh, Peter again they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Here's Bruner. Quote, all looking has a purpose, and the looking that Jesus condemns here specifically is lustful looking, staring with the intent to possess or at least to burn. The other person is not is no loved, unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling, tender, a thing, a way to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's powers. I think that encapsulates what Jesus is talking about. Um, keep, keep that quote in mind. So uh, Bruner again, lust is like anger in that it seeks power over another person. Both anger and lust put the other person down Those by seemingly opposite emotions, by hatred and by desire. But the emotions of anger and lustful desire unite in their egoism, in their enjoyment of power over other people. People are used in both. So you can see what's going on here and why Jesus is, is linking the two. So is is the whole point of this that Jesus is really ramping up the law? He's, he's developing the law. He's unpacking it. He's suggesting that Jews, you've been short-sheeting the law. You've been really doing pretty well, pretty well with adultery, but no, you gotta you gotta step your game up. It's time to gird your loins. And and so here's what I'm gonna say. If you want to be my follower, you gotta stop lusting men and women. Your spiritual eternity is up for grabs. I mean, he mentions hell. And here's here's one such commentary. Quote, because the importance of obeying God's standards of righteousness, radical action should be taken to avoid the cause of the temptation. You get the, you get the leaning in that, right? 
Uh, back to the quote, the discipleship of the kingdom sometimes requires drastic measures. The literal plucking out of an eye or cutting off of a hand, however, will not at all necessarily rid one of the problem. The culprit lies elsewhere in the heart, the inner person. This is the strange language of hyperbole used to make a significant point. Disciples are called to a standard of conduct that includes even the realm of their thinking. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, Jesus is going to say in 548 of Matthew, be perfect. So yeah, we're supposed to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbors, love our enemies. But who does that? See, that's the point is, uh, I think I've mentioned that in, pre- in prep for the Sermon on the Mount and the novel I'm doing on, on Matthew, the Rabboni, and the new Bible study on the, the uh, Beatitudes, Jesus said what? I, I interviewed, spoke to a bunch of different Christians, and, and most of them, by the way, three quarters at least, said that when they listen to, to sermons, messages through the Sermon on the Mount, they feel more discouraged than when they started. Because it just feels like um, we tend to ramp things up. You know, you, you think you're a good Christian, but hey, listen to this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. You can't even get angry. You're a disappointment to Jesus every time you get angry, every time you don't forgive, every time you you fall into lusting. Man. All right, so what do we do? So let's say that the, the person who wrote that last quote is correct, that we're supposed to do this, but we don't. Um, that's discouraging. That's shaming. And what muscle group? There's no health club to work out lusting muscle groups to make them more, to make us more disciplined. And the, by the way, the more you focus on it, doesn't it seem to get worse? So, you know, the comment rightly says that cutting off body parts won't work, but it doesn't say what will. It basically implies we just need to try harder at this. Well, good on you. Good luck with that. And let me ask, ask how's that going for you? Okay. So we agree. Don't pluck your eye out. There's there's a better option. We'll say more about that. Um, so that's first. Second, I'm going to suggest that Jesus is not using hyperbole. He's using sarcasm. I, you know, I'm leaning into this. You can push back, Bill, at gospel-app.com. But I think Jesus was wonderful uh, at, at uh, Jewish rhetorical sarcasm, being tongue-in-cheek here. I think you'd have to be on the hillside and see his facial reactions and his, the smirking. And, and you can tell when a comedian is, is on the stage versus when a lecturer is on the stage. I think Jesus is enjoying uh, speaking to the crowd about these very difficult topics. And I think the crowd is enjoying hearing from him. I think they get the joke a little. Uh, I wonder if we do, and hopefully more so after these two podcasts. So context reminder, Jesus is speaking to the Tokoyan spirit. These are those who have been overlooked, abused, dehumanized, just dismissed. They're the shamed and despised of the community. They were in deep holes, some of which they dug themselves, some they didn't dig, they were thrown into. But in all cases, I can say this, it was not all their fault. No matter how they got into that dark, lonely, isolated hole, uh, they're there, and they don't have the capacity on their own to fix their lot in life. They need a rescue. They need a powerful patron benefactor. Their brains in that hole of theirs were lust-manufacturing plants. Are you with me? 
it would have been cruel for Jesus to tell these, these lust manufacturing plants to stop doing it. Um, they wouldn't know how. And it, by the way, it's not just lusting after humans. It's lusting after medications and alcohol, success, appearance, money, gossip, all of these things. Uh, any source of dopamine in the brain is all similar. Uh, they were meek, Jesus said. They get it that they aren't going to change much on their own. The, trying harder has not worked for them, and they've probably stopped. In fact, it likely only leads to more shame and feeling like they're worse failures, failures than they already thought. So they came to the hillside likely with very little expectations other than maybe, just maybe Jesus would relieve some of their pain. Maybe he was a miracle healer who could end their internal bleeding or demonic possession or depression. He could make them see or walk or hear, maybe. But what about their shame? This was an honor-shame culture, so the only way they could regain face in their family or tribe or village was for this respected, honored patron to publicly receive them back with a new name, a new honor, a new identity. Well, they weren't expecting that. Why would they? And yet Jesus begins to speak and say, enviable are the unenviable. Oh, and by the way, that's you, because I proclaim, Jesus says, to you, over you, on the basis of my authority and glory, the heavens are yours. They're now God's and God is yours. You know, the very promises that, that God gave to Abraham, Noah, David, Moses, they're yours. On my name it is so. Present tense, the heavens are yours. Well, like we said when we went through the Beatitudes, no heaven had ever been theirs before. They had little to do with God, most likely, and would have thought that God had little to do with them. That is the only way for them to explain their lot. They were not on God's A list or B list or any list for that matter until Jesus, and it seems so random, uh, again, back when we did podcast on the Beatitudes, and it'll be picked up on my, my new Bible study, Jesus said what? Something happened on the mountain. And this is the key to understanding what Jesus's words in our passage means. They would have likely begun to feel a little or a lot honor, appreciated, loved by God, or at least this one rabbi anyway, and maybe this honor for the first time for a long time, maybe ever in their lives. And they didn't get it all. They didn't experience it all, right? I, hey, look, I don't even get it all. It really is too good to be true. It's all unexpected. It was shocking, Matthew says, ekplesso. Yet they got something. So their receptivity is up. They're less defensive. They feel a little bit like innies. It's a new thing for them. They felt less shame, less guilt. And Jesus piles on all the good stuff. You get the land. Remember, that's a synecdoche for all the promises. You get to come real close to God, pure of heart, and so that you can begin to feel his compassion for you and the hurt you've endured. Then, as a result of Jesus's word, his spirit pouring out, remember Isaiah 9, they necessarily began to feel some mercy for others. Righteousness, a little. Before they were in curvatus sensei, remember the self turned in upon itself. They were survivors. They were focused, so human, on their own issues and hurts and sad narratives. This is how we're made. Us first. It's survival. But their emptied cups began to be filled with the fullness of God a little. So now they were able to look outward. They began, and this is critical here on this topic, to hunger and thirst for righteousness a little bit. Beatitudes. Remember what we said about it. Righteousness is the, the God-source desiring the well-being and honors of others over self. They want happiness more for others. 
They want others to be treated with respect. Before their cups began to be filled, they couldn't. Uh, It's just brain science. It was everyone for themselves. We would use others for dopamine to fill our cups a little bit, to feel good a little bit, or to to disguise our, our sadness a little bit. So others are out there. It's a competitive game, and others are out there to be used. A zero-sum game. Just like you have been used, people on the hillside. So now they're feeling towards others a little bit like Jesus feels towards them. That's what you know happens when a great benefactor takes a client. The client begins to mirror the benefactor. Something new, something wonderful, something powerful. In an honor-shame culture, the clients, that's the people on the hillside, will likely go out and act like the patron in the name of the patron, motivated by the patron, right? So the patron, they, they experience that the patron loves unlovables, makes unworthy worthy. The patron seeks restoration and glory for the people who are beat up and in holes. So why then? Why then? If that's what they're feeling, wouldn't they less be motivated to lust after others? Because that's abusive. That's um, objectifying. That's insensitive. That's unloving. That's selfish. They would supernaturally lust less. We'll get into that more after a short break from our sponsors. All right, we're heating up. Uh, Welcome back. So, again, why would anyone, any human, all of us, by the way, abusively, insensitively, selfishly lust after others? All right, answer number one, because it's a chemically reinforced, very human habit. Because for 24-7, as long as we've been on planet Earth, that's what we've experienced. It's a bad habit at this point, but it's it's a habit. It's brain science. In our brain is a thing the science refers to as a pleasure center. It's in our midbrain, very powerful. It controls the release of oxytocin, very powerful bonding chemical. The bottom line is it feels good when it is released. Also, dopamine is released when we lust, the chemical most related to forming an addiction. So if we do something... So we we gaze leeringly at at uh, someone from the opposite sex or or same sex. We we just we we leer at somebody else. We get a shot of dopamine, and my brain goes, "Whoa, I like that. Do it again." And if you do it again with the same results, hey, I remember that. Let's do it again and again and again. And a habit, a very powerful habit, is chemically formed in our brain. An addiction right? When it is uncontrolled. So lusting becomes an habitual cycle reinforced with brain chemicals. There's power involved, right? So if I am a shamed, emptied cup, like the people on the hillside, frankly, like all of us, isolated, lonely, sad, remember Penthine, meek, depressed, tokoy, uh, my head is going to, my brain, my midbrain is going to leap at anything that gives me that toxic brain chemical cocktail of oxytocin and dopamine. It's like fire on very dry kindling. Try to stop it. But if I'm less of an emptied cup, if I've been filled a little bit uh, to the full with the fullness of God, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3, I'm going to need that cocktail less. It's going to be less interesting to my midbrain. The habit will lose gasoline. 
the fullness of God is going to target that very same area of the brain. It's going to release dopamine. It's addictive. And, and the fullness of God, like we experienced on that hillside, whatever your hillside was, makes you and me feel honor towards others a little bit. So we will desire to use them less. And so look, Jesus knows all of this. He created the brain. And a, so he loves oxytocin and dopamine. They're not evil, but he knows that you can take an addict who is jonesing after some hit, let's say the rush that happens when lust occurs, and you can pluck out their eyes or hands or any other body part, and their brain is still going to jones for oxytocin and dopamine, meaning it's not going to work. Jesus is kidding. It's irony. It's sarcasm. It's tongue-in-cheek. He's telling people, you know, these people on the hillside who are now in on the joke a little, nothing, nothing they do on their own, proactive or defensively, that's going to stop them from dishonoring others or not loving others or not using others for their own security or joy or lust or pleasure or, or power. The only thing that works, and they're finally getting it because they've just experienced it just shortly before the, Jesus's proclamation, they're getting the power of God through the Spirit and their inner being, the Spirit poured out, so that they can grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ towards them. And that object, that person who they might normally be tempted you know, 10 times after, out of 10 to lust after, or that drug or that drink or that porn or that gambling or that gossip or that power trip, right? So I think the crowd laughed out loud, well, or at least nervously chuckled, you know, oh, the absurdity of all of this. Of course, we're not supposed to lust. You know what? I, 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 think, I think I don't feel the need, is the right word, I think, the need to lust as much right now. So look, the, uh, the moralist made their bones on guilting, lonely, empty people with harsh laws, which were attached to harsh punishment. And that's how you scare people into short-term behavioral change. But the dirty little secret is the brain just laughs at that. And it doesn't have lasting effect other than shaming people. Lust and the chemicals behind it in our brain is very, very, very powerful. You know that if you've tried to stop it. We know scientists doubts that. And if a person, a Christian, lusts, which all Christians do over something, even though we know it's wrong, selfish, destructive, unloving, 100% of the time we're going to feel shame unless we're sociopaths, right? And, and by the way, to the, you sociopaths and, and our audience, welcome. We are very glad you're here. But you're just not going to feel shame. Um, so if, if you do, and if that ramps up when a moralist or a pastor behind a pulpit tells you how bad this is, and you realize that, and you, you confess that you can't do anything about it, you can't seem to stop, you must be broken. So what do you do? Well, you self-medicate by lusting again and getting that dopamine hit a little bit. You can feel good in the midst of your shame, and the cycle begins, and, and the cycle doesn't have an end. The law and the legislation of the law, the enforcement of the law, has very little power to stop such an addiction. The only thing that can is the gospel, grace, Jesus, the power of the Spirit. So Jesus, he's the only one who could stand up and sarcastically say with, with a flourish of his hands or with a smirk, it's got to be obvious to those people who saw him 
you know, it's time to get serious, men and women. Let's just start lopping off body parts until it gets it gets fixed. <laughs> Better go to the grave, cut off from God, right? Wink, 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 wink. <clears throat> Look, the Pharisees, the, the religious moralists, likely strangers to much of this kind of humor, <laughs> I'm guessing, might have bit on the bait. You know, finally, they might say, wagging their, their heads and beards in the wind, the rabbi finally said something we agree with. He's taking on sin and the consequences of sin seriously. But you know, Jesus is speaking to a group of sinners, no doubt serial lusters in the bunch, like the rest of us, who he already said owns heaven. Uh, they're never going to be separated from God and God's embrace again, right? Whether they lust or not. That's the truth of the gospel. So... He's not saying, hey, I've got an idea. All the lusters form a line here, and my disciples have um, have knives. They're going to start cutting off a few fingers, and let's see how it goes. I mean, if you need more surgery, you know, we can remove the entire hand or the eye or, you know, some other unmentionable part, and that ought to do it. Wink, wink, chuckle, chuckle. Or there's another option. You can look into my eyes and be filled with heavens, with God's righteousness. You can enter into that, and you will notice, others will notice you will need to lust less often. It'll be miraculous. Not perfectly till heaven, but you will notice the difference. You'll be encouraged. In fact, you will feel honor and respect for the person who you previously objectified a little bit, a little bit, maybe a lot, and people will see that and be amazed that something has changed in you, and they will know you are clients of mine because of that. That's why I have come to honor others and to pour out my spirit so that you will also begin to honor and love others in my name in the same way. So look, don't cut your hand off. It's not going to help, and it's going to hurt like hell. Don't pull out your eye. Your eye's not the problem. It's your addicted, lonely, unloving, unloved, insensitive brain that's developed so many bad, chemically motivated habits. Disgraceful, abusive, selfish, destructive, angry, dehumanizing addictions, to be sure, but you can't control them. You need a power from me more powerful than your midbrain and your addiction. No worries. Come to me look into my eyes. We can do this together. Don't do it on your own. Or you can follow them. And he waves his arms over to the religious moralists who are huddled so they're not touched by the unclean ones who claim that you can do better if you only worked harder or if you were more disciplined or you were more afraid of God or, or were reformed by punishment or imprisonment or pain or the threat of hell. And good luck with that. I mean, how has that gone for Christians, Christianity? You know, if you follow them around for a bit, I think you're going to see that it's not working for them much either, to tell you the truth. And remember, your righteousness needs to surpass theirs by a lot. Jesus is being wonderfully sarcastic. He's being satirical. Let me give you an example. Uh, maybe you're familiar with Jonathan Swift's, the, the great 17th century novelist. Uh, he wrote um, The Modest Proposal. It appears that, as, he, as you're reading it, it appears to be a serious political suggestion to help end poverty in 17th century Ireland, which was overwhelming the country. But it doesn't take long to see that it's satire. Here's what Wikipedia says, quote, 
The essay suggests that the impoverished Irish might ease their economic troubles by selling their children as food to rich gentlemen and ladies. This satirical hyperbole mocked heartless attitudes towards the poor, predominantly Irish Catholics, i.e. Papist, as well as British policy towards the Irish in general. Swift's essay is wildly held to be one of the greatest examples of sustained irony in the history of the English language. Much of its shock value, and this sounds like Jesus here, doesn't it, derives from the fact that the first portion of the essay describes the plight of starving beggars in Ireland so that the reader is unprepared for the surprise of Swift's solution when he states, quote, a young healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed or roasted or baked or boiled, and I will make no doubt that it will be equally served in a fricassee or a ragu, close quote. (laughs) A modest proposal was targeted to upper-class reformers who regarded people as commodities. Well, ultimately, that's what lusting is. It's it's unknowingly, uh, subconsciously treating that other person as a commodity that you can use. So ultimately, Swift's goal was to convince the Irish Parliament to improve the conditions of the poor. But he used uh, he used irony, he used satire to accomplish that. His idea of of eating children as a metaphor for what he saw as the exploitation of the poor, such as high rents charged by landlords. Rhetorical irony, that's what Jesus, that's that's this section of the Beatitudes. He really didn't want people to deal with population explosion by eating their children. Isn't it very powerful? Have you heard this before? I mean, again, it's my suggestion. I, I have a hard time proving it. I just think that it makes sense to me. Again, push back, bill at gospel-app.com. Jesus is mocking in the most satirical way, the strict and often harsh and insensitive discipline of religious moralists who seemed to want the law obeyed, but did it sometimes in ways that led to harm for the sinners, more harm for the sinners. It shamed them. They withheld the very grace needed to accomplish the goal. And by the way, that's certainly the testimony of many, if not all the people on the hillside, right? You are where you are because of sin and shame, the religious might say. Jesus is being satirical, I'm going to suggest. Uh, But I have to think that deeper down, he was enraged at the heart of satire as anger. He was enraged at the harm that was being done to these poor people, people that he loved so much that he gave them the heavens. He's caring for now as their benefactor, their patron. The bulk of the hillside people, the hill people, I think got the joke a little bit. And that's why they followed him ultimately. The religious moralists, yeah, I think a lot of them got it as well. All right, enough for now. We'll look at the sec. We'll look at the second of the six antitheses a, li- a little deeper. Uh, give me feedback, Bill at gospel-app.com. I I know this is provocative. Pass it on. And remember, at the end of the next podcast, we're going to give you a gospel tool that just might uh, be beneficial, might lead to some relief. Uh, it has been time tested, so don't miss it and pass this on to others. I want to take just another second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and now a gospel rant. Until next time, take heart, child of God. Hey friends, Nicole Eunice here from the How to Study the Bible podcast. 
I want to invite you to experience a fresh look at the story of Joseph and what it means for you today. Life can totally throw us for a loop, whether it's your family or your marriage, work, church, or something else entirely. Maybe you have found yourself in a season that you never would have expected and that you certainly wouldn't have signed up for. In this six-week Bible study together, we're going to talk about the biblical story of Joseph, a man who lived an unexpected life and trusted God through it all. We'll talk about the blessings he experienced, the promises God keeps, the way that tests of our character can actually refine our faith. We'll talk about patience. We'll talk about loss. Absolutely talk about redemption. So come join us for the six-week series over on the How to Study the Bible podcast. Can't wait to dive in with you.